You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life on the Palouse, reaching the world for Jesus, one person at a time. Hey, good morning, Real Life. Good to see you guys all today. If you're joining us online or today is your first day with us, welcome to the family. Glad to have you guys with us. Glad to have you worship with us this Sunday, our Lord and Savior. My name is Adam McKeldry. I get the honor and privilege of serving here on staff as the associate pastor. And like Mitch said, we are kicking off this new sermon series um, called Someone Else's Shoes. Now, you've most likely all heard the old admonishment, you know, don't judge someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes, right? We've all heard that before. And really what that's saying is, you know, don't, don't try to find out, don't judge someone until you have heard their story, until you understand who they are and where they've come from. And our stories truly are the most powerful things that we have, the most powerful weapons of change that we have in our lives. And particularly, those of us who follow God, our story of what God has done in our lives and is currently doing in our lives is the most important, the most powerful story we have. And with that stuff in in mind, that is why we are going to be diving into the text We're going to be checking out some different people throughout God's word. Some of them you've never heard of. Some of them you have. Some of them only have very few sections in the the scripture. But what we're going to do is we want to walk some miles in their shoes. We want to dive into their stories and see what it is that God did in their lives. What he did through them, for them, in their time and in their place and see What can we draw out from that story and apply it to us? Apply it to ourselves. Apply it in our time, in our place, in our story. The first set of shoes that we're going to walk through in this series are those of a man that many of you had never heard of the name until you just saw it pop up on the screen. How many of you are out there that are that way? Come on. All right. That's where I was a decade and a half ago when I first heard the name Benaiah. We have some friends that were over in the Missoula area that we're in church with, and their, their oldest son, they had given this name. And I was like, all right, I know there's a lot of weird names that people are naming their kids, but what, this is a unique name. Where did, and I asked him one day, I said, where did you get this name? He's like, well, it's a biblical name. Oh, yes. I felt a little foolish that I had never heard of this name before. But, I mean, there's over 1,700 unique names in the text, most of which I can't even pronounce, so I didn't feel that bad for that long. But I said, why did you name him after this? This man, he's like, go, go to the text and read about him and you'll know. So I did. I went to the text and I read this short passage that we're going to read later today. And I was like, yep, that's a good guy to name your son after. That is a mighty man. The man named Benaiah. And this guy was a servant of David's. And I know we've talked a lot about David over the course of the last year. We've talked about Uh, how he worshipped and how he prayed and how God used him in different ways. 
But we can't talk about Benaiah today without first going into the, the context and the setting of his life, which includes talking briefly about David. Now, if you don't know much about David, you know, David was a, a little boy, a little shepherd boy, the day that Samuel the prophet showed up on his doorstep and anointed him with oil as the next king of Israel. And between that time and when he actually takes the throne is a substantial amount of years. And during that time, he gets the privilege and honor of being able to serve in King Saul's court as a musician. And as he grows up, he gets to be a soldier in Saul's army. But a problem arises when people start to look at David and see him and all the great things that he's accomplishing, and they start to praise him and sing his accolades. They talk about how Saul's killed his thousands, but David's killed his tens of thousands. And Saul becomes to be, gets to become angry and jealous. So he sets out to try to kill David. And then that starts David's time in his life where he has to be fleeing Saul until the day Saul died. But in the midst of that time, David takes a bunch of guys and starts to gather them around him. He's a magnetic personality. He starts to get all these guys come around, and he builds an army within himself. Guys that are following him see that he's a man after God's own heart, and they want to follow him. And within this army, there are men who rise to the top, who are the best of the best. There's 30 guys that the text tell us rise to the top and they are renowned amongst all the other fighters. And they're referred to as the mighty men of David. But even, even more so, there are as a smaller group of guys within those 30 who outshine all of them. And in 2 Samuel chapter 23, where we're going to go to in just a minute, we get to read about some of the exploits of these mighty men. There's three guys in particular that are just referred to as the three that do some just crazy things. They, they have amazing victories over impossible odds. One of the stories that this section of scripture tells us about is there's one time when, when Israel is in, in war with uh, Philist, the Philistines. And David is sitting there, and he's just talking. He's like, oh, man, I'm so thirsty. If only I could have water from the well by the gate of Bethlehem, his hometown. And these three guys overhear him say this. So what do they do? They bust through the enemy lines, go to the well and draw a cup of water and bring it back to David. Three guys. This is just some of the stuff they, they have done. Our life groups this week are going to read this whole passage, and you'll get to see some of the other crazy things that these three guys did. But in this section, we also hear about Benaiah. It's not the first time you see Benaiah's name. He pops up a couple of chapters earlier. But it's this section of chapter, uh, the text that I want to read today that we're going to launch the rest of our day together off with. So come with me. If you have your Bibles, over to 2 Samuel, chapter 23. 
I'm going to read verses 20 through 23 here. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, a valiant fighter from Kabzeel, performed great exploits. He struck down Moab's two mightiest warriors. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down a huge Egyptian. Although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, Benaiah went up against him with only a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty warriors. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. How cool is this guy? This is the kind of stuff that Hollywood drools over when they're making movies. How do we not have a movie about this guy already? Like, this is crazy. But why are we, gonna t- why are we talking about Benaiah today? What does this little section of scripture give to us? Which is the question I was asking myself three or four weeks ago. As I was starting to build this sermon, I thought to myself, why on earth did I suggest this guy? God, what do you have for us about Benaiah? What, do we, what can we draw from his story? And God kept leading me back to that second bit of, of exploits that are listed there. The fact that Benaiah went into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Now the other two things that are there, I can understand. I can understand how he found himself in a position where he could battle two of Moab's greatest warriors and be able to defeat them. I can understand how he found himself face-to-face with a giant from Egypt and was able to battle him and kill him. But the thing that doesn't make sense to me, makes no logical sense to me, is the bit about killing a lion in a pit. It doesn't make sense to me because if you look back at the text, it infers that he actually chased the lion into the pit. He wasn't running from the lion and happened to fall into a pit because it was slippery and snowy and had to defend himself and and kill this lion. No. He pursued this creature, this beast, this predator that kills animals way bigger than human beings into the pit. Look at this thing. Is this something that you want to pursue into a a pit on any weather condition, let alone a snowy day? These things are crazy. 
When they take down their prey, they like to grab onto your throat or the back of your neck and just hold on until you suffocate. They don't kill you right away. This is what he went after on purpose. I don't know why. I have some theories. One of my theories stems from the fact that I know that soldiers get bored. And when soldiers get bored, they do stupid stuff. And I can just imagine some of his buddies being like, dude, I bet you couldn't take that thing out. You killed the Egyptian, but look at that. Can you do that? Lions were hunted by kings and powerful men to try to to show their strength and their ability to protect others. Maybe that's why he did it. I don't know. Regardless of what his motivation was, Benaiah that day showed himself to be a lion chaser. Not one who gets chased by lions. Someone who faces his fears and does not back down. And it's this part of his story that I want us to to hold on to and draw out some truths that we can apply to our own stories and our own walks of life. I know that it is highly unlikely that any of us will find ourselves face-to-face with a lion in a pit on a snowy day. But I would venture to guess that Many of us have had circumstances or conditions in our lives where we felt like we were face-to-face with a lion. I would venture to guess that many of us have made decisions in our lives or have had habits that have brought us down into a pit. And some of us, some of us seem to have a little more benaya in us than others. And they're able to find ways to, to grab hold of that lion that they're faced with and, and, and take it down and, and, and have victory. And when they're faced with being in the, in the bottom of a pit, they know there's a way out. But the rest of us, The rest of us find it difficult to believe that there's even a sliver of Benaiah within us. When we see the lion, we don't go after it. We go the other way. We don't want anything to do with that. Or if we find ourselves in the bottom of a pit, we freeze. Because we don't believe that there's any way out for us. Ultimately, the the biggest difference between these two circumstances is whether or not that you believe that God has created you, God has created all of us to be lion chasers. Not just a select few. It's all of us. And the lions that we face 
are going to be of varying sizes and shapes. And the chases that we go on are going to be varying lengths, like sometimes it's going to take longer than other times. What I want to talk about today is what it looks like for us to chase those lions. I want to spend the rest of the time drawing and sharing with you guys some things that I got from a book that I read. It's in the bottom of your notes. It's by Mark Batterson. If you've never read this book, I, I love this book. I've read it several times. It's really good. But in that book, he talks about several skills, abilities that we need to have in our lives to be lion chasers. And I want to just highlight a few of those for us with the remainder of our time together. And like I was saying, you know, lions come in different sizes. Hunts last different lengths of time. Sometimes we can get into a situation where we feel like the odds are stacked against us. Sometimes we can be in a situation where they feel like they are for us. But the most important thing, the, the first thing that we need to have as lion chasers, chasers is summed up so perfectly, I believe, in this quote from A.W. Tozer. Check out what he says. He says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Here's why I think this quote is so perfect for this. If we have a finite or limited view of who God is, what he stands for, what what his willingness is to be invested and involved in our lives, then what happens is he will only ever be as big as the problem that we are facing. Or to keep with the theme that we're talking about today, he will only ever be as strong as we need him to be to, to, to kill that lion that we're chasing after. We end up making God small in our minds. And what Batterson talks about in his book is that we have to get to a place where that we know that our best thought on our best day about God doesn't even come close to how great he is. Not even close. And when we are able to bring our minds to this place where we can can fathom the truth or begin to fathom the truth of God's infinite greatness, what happens is that God becomes bigger and bigger and our lions become smaller and smaller. Now, becoming a lion chaser begins with us understanding that we do not chase on our own power. We can't do it on our own. We can't do it by our own greatness. But that it's rather through God's infinite greatness that we are able to be lion chasers. I am confident that Benaiah knew that truth. That he was not doing that on his own power. That he had seen God come through time and time again in his own life 
against the Moabites, against the Egyptian. He has seen other guys in his company do amazing things. He's walking and fighting alongside of David and knows David's story. He knows how great God is. And so in that moment, he's able to confront that lion. And this is also how we can, in our own minds, begin to know the unfathomable greatness of God. As we look back and remember and see the times that he, he has helped us overcome. And those times when we felt like the odds were stacked against us. He was there. And we see it in other people's lives as well. But one of the cool things that makes God so great is that he doesn't just care about those moments. He doesn't just show up in those moments. He shows up in the small moments too. And the moments that we think are insignificant, that he wouldn't waste his time on. He's there. He cares about that. To be a lion chaser, you have to be able to be willing to face your fears. The psychiatrists have determined that we are all born with two innate fears, the fear of falling and the fear of loud sounds. Every other fear that we have is learned, except potentially the fear of snakes. I think that's biblical. (laughs) I'm going to stick with that one. But if we have learned to have these fears in our lives, that must mean that we can be able to unlearn them. We can unlearn our fears. And it takes time. It takes us exposing ourselves to those things a little bit at a time to be able to build up tolerance to it. It makes me think of one of my favorite movies, The Princess Bride. It's like if you want to build up an immunity to iocane powder, obviously you're going to be drinking some of it for years ahead just in case you get in a battle of wits with a Sicilian. So... It's the same thing, really. And one of the fears that I know that has been prevalent in my own life, that I've, I've had to face many times, is the fear of failure. Many of you probably have the same one. But fa- fear of failure doesn't come by itself. It brings along with it the fear of rejection. And it's something that has paralyzed me since I was a little kid. Like, I couldn't even ask girls to dance at junior high dances. I was that scared. It's a legitimate scare. But it's still something that I have to battle to this day. Every week that I get to the privilege of getting up here and sharing with you guys, I battle the fear of failure and rejection. It's just the way it is. But every week... When God shows me on the other side of it at 12.30 on Sunday afternoon, it's okay, right? Like, oh yeah, it's okay. I'm okay. I'm still your child. I still have worth in your eyes. I get to be more and more free of that learned fear. And going hand in hand, with having to face fears is knowing that as lion chasers, you have to take risks. 
And the size of the risk depends on the size of the lion. Some of us are chasing lions that look like having to chase, uh, change careers in the middle of our lives. And that can be scary. That's, that's a ton of risk for you and your family. Some of us have to take risks and chase after lions like a family at our sister church in Pullman did a few years ago and decided to uproot the whole family and go to Ethiopia for a few years and be a mission, missionary family. Sometimes a risk just looks like you be wi- being willing to be vulnerable and get into a life group and invite people into your lives because that's scary. It's scary to invite people into your life so that they can see what you look like outside of this time. Without risk, there is no reward, as the, as the saying goes. But I'm not just talking about a material reward here. Although there is, sometimes God gives us material reward. As you look more into Benaiah's story, you see that his life as a lion chaser had benefits later on. He, we already read it in Second Samuel, he was placed over David's personal bodyguard because of who he was. And later on in his story, in 1 Kings chapter 1, it's in your notes, there's a, there's a bit there where David is about to die and one of his sons decides he wants the throne. So he starts to build up a coup to try to take over. But David had already decided Solomon was going to take over. And he depended on Benaiah and a couple other people to make sure that Solomon got anointed as the next king of Israel. And then his last step in life that we see in the text is that Benaiah was named as the the commander of all the army of Israel underneath Solomon because he chose to live as a lion chaser. So yeah, sometimes God takes our efforts to chase lions and he opens doors, gives us opportunities that look like that. But sometimes our chasing of lions just gives us an opportunity to learn more about ourselves. Sometimes it gives us an opportunity to learn more about God, to experience him at a deeper level. We're all going to be chasing lions all of our lives. But there's one chase that I believe that has a greater opportunity than any of them. There is one lion that makes all other lions look like kittens. That's the lion of Judah. That's Jesus Christ. And the greatest chase that any of us could ever be on is to chase that lion. So many of us have a misunderstanding about what chasing a relationship with Jesus Christ means. Many of us think that that means that we are not going to be able to have 
opportunities to chase other things in our lives. Actually, in some way, that's true. It's true if you are chasing things for your own greatness and for, for your own name and not God's. But is this chase after God where we learn what it means to be truly, truly be a lion chaser? Where we learn how to recognize that no matter what the odds are, no matter that, that God is greater than all of those things, that all the fears that we've learned over the course of our life, that we can conquer those fears. We can unlearn those things and they can have no more control over us. We can learn that every risk is worth every opportunity of what lies at the end of our chase after him. You know what the awesome thing is about chasing after God? Is as we are going after him, he'll bring other lions across our path for us to go after. He'll bring other opportunities for us to grow, to learn more about ourselves, to, more, to learn more about him, to give us opportunities to love one another. Chasing after the Lion of Judah does not mean that we lose life. It means we gain it. And if you're wondering, like, how do I know? How do I know if, as I'm chasing God, if the lion that comes across my path is one that I should go after or not? Well, if you go after it and you're questioning that, maybe you need to step back and take stock of what's going on. Is the pursuit of that lion consuming you more than the pursuit of your relationship with God? Perhaps that one is not the one you should be going after. Or perhaps you just need to reorient yourself. And God does want you to chase it, but he wants you to do it out of the power and the strength that he gives you as you pursue him. As we bring our time today to close and we start to get ready for communion, which if you're new here with us today, we do communion each week. We get the honor of doing that. Uh, You don't have to be a partner or a regular attender to take communion with us. We just ask that you have made that commitment in your life to be someone who chases after God, chases that relationship with him. So as you're getting your communion ready, I want to leave you with one one last thing. I want to leave you with a quote from this book, again, that I read that I, I think you guys would love. I swear to you. But it's a quote from a guy who is a theologian, a, a Catholic priest who becomes a cardinal. His name is John Cardinal Newman. And he says this. He says, Fear not that thy life shall come to an end, but rather fear that it shall never have a beginning. Don't fear that your life will come to an end if you choose to chase after God. But realize that that truly is just the beginning of life. He's created us all to be lion chasers. There was nothing that special 
about Benaiah other than the fact that he knew he served a great God. And that God was on his side and that God fought his battles with him and for him some days. And he does the same for us. He did the same for us. And that's what we remember every week when we take communion together. We remember the greatest lion chaser of all time, Jesus Christ, who through his pursuit of the lion that God had put before him made a way. He made a way for us to have relationship with him. He conquered sin and death. He made a way for us to partner with him in putting the world back together, bringing restoration back to his creation. That's what he did by chasing his lion. So, on the night that he was betrayed and as he sat around his friends that he had been modeling for, for three years as to what it looked like to chase after hard things. He took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So let us take together the bread and remember Christ. And then after the the supper, he took the cup, said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. Let's take it together. Father God, we, we bless you, we lift you up, we lift up your name. We lift up who you are, Lord, that you are greater and mightier than our little minds could ever begin to fathom. And one of the greatest things, Lord, that you, that is about you is that you care so much about us. You care about the small things, Lord. You provide us all that we need. And so, Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, I pray for myself, Lord, as it, that as we leave today and we think about Benaiah and we think about the lions in our, in our lives that we have conquered under your power in the past, are faced with today, Lord, that we will remember that we are not alone. Lord, that we will remember that we do not do it on our own power to chase after them. That we have you. We have one another to support us, to love us through that. Lord, give us the courage to be able to chase hard after you. And as we do that, Lord, give us the courage to chase after the things that you bring upon our, uh, across our path. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by visiting liferotp.com and connecting with us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, have a great week.